On May 1st, 2014, her life changed forever. She was hospitalized and diagnosed with a rare blood disorder, but she wasn't satisfied with the prognosis and treatments. She went to work researching her disorder and found hope in a drug approved for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and rheumatoid arthritis. She also set a goal to become an attorney shortly after being diagnosed. She achieved that goal less than four years later in April of 2018. Now she's a rare disease warrior, breaking down antiquated rules and regulations governing how FDA-approved drugs are used. Repurposing drugs. Sound familiar? As usual, there's more to the story, starting right now. Welcome to the show, world-famous Candace Lerman. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here today and, and to chat about all the things I'm extremely passionate about. Oh, I know you are because I follow you on Twitter, <laughs> at Rare Candace. I will repeat that. We will have links in the description. So setting the stage here a little, COVID-19 is an epic medical tsunami. And it's been blasting through some old rules, regulations, uh, processes, procedures, and, and maybe, just maybe, now the waters are starting to show signs of receding. And we're going to be left with assessing the damage and figuring out how to move forward. And I did a show a couple weeks ago, let's see, was it two or three weeks ago, COVID-19, what's good about it? And that got me thinking, too. There, there are some good things coming, and we're going to talk about some of those. But one of the good things is, is the, this thing has caused so much change so rapidly, and it's exposing some really deep flaws in all healthcare systems globally, not just the U.S. So the medical tsunami hashtag is, is very appropriate for this. And to give a lay of the land to people who may not understand the scope of rare disease, I found a, I found a good description of it, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to put it to memory. In the U.S., a rare disease is defined as a condition affecting fewer than 200,000 people. There are more than 7,000 rare diseases uh, that have been identified, yet only 5% have treatments. The total number of Americans living with a rare disease is estimated at between 25 to 30 million. On average, it takes over four years to receive an accurate diagnosis of a rare disease. Candace Lehrman, why is that? So the rare disease community uses the zebra to sort of identify all 7,000 different conditions. And when we walk into a doctor's office, our, our main ask is when you hear hoofbeats, think zebras, not horses. So that. take that unique identification of zebra stripes and apply it to the patient sitting in front of you. Um, for rare diseases, about 
uh, percent of them are genetic. So if someone gets a genetic test, they may get the results back that identify what their issue is. I fall into the 20% of patients with a rare disease that is not genetic. And so it requires uh, a lot more uh, testing and, uh, and perhaps uh, more research into what the condition could be, especially if the symptoms overlap with other conditions and could maybe appear as something uh, more common instead of rare. So you have a lot of issues with the diagnostic odyssey and patients really have to depend on finding a physician or a team of physicians willing to take this as sort of an exploration and run with it. So ordering the required testing, finding physicians who are competent in perhaps just say your cluster of symptoms, uh, because you, you may have a physician who is practicing cardiology and you have a heart condition, but the cardiologist may miss it. And therefore you may have to go to uh, your, pedi your child's pediatrician or perhaps a rheumatologist or even if, it, if one of your conditions presents a skin issue, a dermatologist could even find your, your rare disease and be able to accurately diagnose you. It's interesting you bring in a lot of the, the specialists. And I hear, I hear in the back of my head the, the little the buzz is starting to, to go, and we're going to get to that. So in your own timeline... When did you know something wasn't right? This is back, this is back in 2014, right? That, that you, this began, yeah. this journey kind of began for you. Where, when did you know something wasn't right, something wasn't adding up, and when did you, it was May, May 1st, right, of 2014, when you were diagnosed? Yes. What was the timeline before that? So I started showing strange bruising symptoms in January, 2014. I recall having a time, um, at the time I was working for Enterprise in the commercial truck division, and uh, I would deliver uh, trucks to my accounts and things. And, and of course I'm wearing a suit and heels and they're wet and slippery from being cleaned. And I remember slipping out of a cargo van and hitting myself and falling and sitting on the bar next to the seats that hold the seats in. So I had a pair of matching bruises on the back of my legs, which was a little odd. And uh, it, it, was, it was sort of strange. And it was one of those things where when I look back, I'm like, well, that would have been my first sign that something was sort of off. Uh, I progressively started having more bruising as time went on. And then in March 2014, I woke up one day and uh, just took a shower, went to work. Uh, it was casual day at work, so I was wearing khaki pants and Sperry shoes, and I looked down at my legs, and I noticed that I had tons of little purple dots all over my ankles, and I'm very fair-skinned, so obviously who could really see these purple dots? No. I called my mom, and I said, hey, mom, I have this issue. Um, I had just tried to do shaving cream in the morning. You know, maybe I'm having allergic reactions. So she said, call the dermatologist and go. So my regular dermatologist wasn't working. I went in to see a man who helped open the practice and he looked at me and told me it was no big deal. I needed to start wearing compression socks and I was weightlifting too much and too heavy. What I didn't realize was that what that actually was, was petechiae and my platelets were below 10,000. Had I gotten into a car accident or hit my head, I could have died. Wow. So course this is in March April I go uh, travel to uh, Phoenix Arizona Scottsdale Sedona for my mother's birthday I'm wearing shorts because Arizona is very warm in mid-April and uh, my mother started to see my my father too these these bruises that were 
looked like I got hit with a softball. They were so large. Mm. Uh, they were very dark. I had to put makeup over them so that I could go out without people staring at me. Uh, I was having nosebleeds here and there, um, but I was working about 60 to 70 hours a week. Uh, I was doing very well at my job and I just figured I was tired and I had a lot going on and, and that was it. Um, eventually when we returned, uh, my mother sat down, my father and my late boyfriend, and we all had a discussion. And so they convinced me like, yeah, you should go to the gynecologist and have her run some blood and take a look at you. Maybe there's a thyroid issue or something. And uh, she's a great doctor uh, and one of my very good friends. So I just figured, all right, let me go see her. Why not? I walk into her office at the end of April. She took one look at me and goes, this is a job for a hematologist, but I'm going to draw your blood and we'll figure out what's wrong. So on April 30th, she calls me and um, I was actually helping a client at the time. I remember standing at the computer. I had a lot of napkins in my hand because I was having a uh, nosebleed, but I was so adamant about finishing this contract because it was going to set me as the number one woman in sales again for like the fourth month in a row. And I was so competitive and passionate about staying number one. I'm like, I'm going to finish this. So she left a message and I, I went back and uh, I listened to it and she said, Candace, it's Tara. Your platelets are at 7,000. You need to get to an ER immediately or you're going to die. Yeah. Yeah, that'll do it. <laughs> That's that wake up call. <clears throat> you know, good grief you've wow that is a for for someone your age any age really but someone who's young the major, the majority of your life in front of you and you're being presented with hello <laughs> you need to get to the er um that's quite compelling and and so it took a while before i mean they knew something was wrong really wrong at that point that was a process of elimination to find out exactly what was causing it and yes in the last two months kind of switching gears this all motivated you after you went through recovery you then decided i'm going to figure out how am I going to beat this? The warrior in you came out. And so how did that, I mean, how did that part happen? You've been, you've been given this diagnosis through a, through a process of elimination. And then it was treatment time. How do we treat this? How did that work? I mean, what was that like? So I was very, very fortunate to eventually, after going through four hematologists in a six-day hospital stay, and, and no one really had any answers for me and gave me any reassurances or anything about this condition, I ended up at the University of Miami with a brilliant doctor named Dr. Ahn. And um, Dr. Ahn became sort of my mentor. And we spent about a six-month period just confirming that ITP diagnosis through a series of tests and, and treatment uh, things. And I was on steroids at the time. And he encouraged me to go online and start researching and finding out as much information as I could. It was the first doctor I ever really had that was like, yes, please go online and Google this. And please look at what people are saying and connect with other patients. Uh, and so I blame him for creating the monster that is me now because he he encouraged me to get out there. Uh, I don't but think he ultimately, minds. I started asking questions. Yeah, no, he, I he think would always proud. tell me I was his rock star. Yes, I was his angel and his rock star. So I, Brilliant. I, I made a choice of just 
finding connections. Uh, I, I had brought my laptop with me to the hospital uh, when I was originally diagnosed. And so the first thing I did was go on Facebook and search ITP. So I had had friends over a few month period that uh, had this disease and had taken different treatments. But I just asked a simple question. So what is responsible for killing my platelets? And is there a drug out there that could stop whatever's killing my platelets from doing it? And so that's how I stumbled across rituxin. And Dr. Ron had mentioned it to me along with a long, long list of other options and treatments. Um, but I was thinking more analytically uh, with the background in, in my master's in international affairs and emergency management and things like, let's stop the problem where it starts, which is my B cells were destroying my platelets. So after a series of Googling and staying up till three or four in the morning and researching and asking questions, I was able to get other patients to send me some of their uh, data. And it was just a simple thing. I wanted to know how many um, milligrams of prednisone they were on, whether it caused their platelets to rise or not. Uh, if they had a positive antinuclear antibody test showing autoimmune uh, function or dysfunction or activity. And if they used rituxin, did they respond well to it? Meaning did they return to a normal platelet count above 150,000? So I was able to, from the patients that gave me their data, and there was between 25 to 30 people who sent me information, that I, I classified people with my disease in three categories. I had patients like me who had positive ANA, positive response to steroids, and showed platelet destruction. Then I had a second group of patients who didn't necessarily respond to steroids, but had a bone marrow biopsy and were taking uh, two drugs that were on the market at the time for uh, ITP and platelet promacta, which stimulate platelet production in the bone marrow. And then I had a third group of people, which at the time in 2014 were refractory and had no treatment options and really didn't respond to any medication. Uh, so I, I felt that I was in a good position to approach Dr. On about the drug. So I had an appointment with him because my platelets had plummeted to 14,000. And I started seeing those same bruises again, the petechiae on my legs and uh, the nosebleeds and things. And I just said to him, I was like, Dr. On, I, I want to use rituxin. And he goes, that's good because that was going to be the treatment that I was going to pick for you. You arrived at your own treatment. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you had, but, but you had guidance yes. there, you know, you had guidance with a f physician who was taking the time basically. And, and, and that's really important. Um, but now you're repurposing a drug that's been approved. It's been around for quite a while, right? I mean, when was the first approved? Yes. Or was it, it was, was it, approved, I believe in early 2000s, first to treat non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then I believe in 2006 is when they uh, issued a, another um, label change for rheumatoid arthritis. So it is, and it's being used in rheumatoid arthritis and a couple other um, autoimmune conditions. Yeah. And so how did the first person who took the drug for your condition, your disease, why, why did they, why did they, did you know the story behind that? Why did they, someone had to be the first test case. Was it by mistake? Was it, I mean, you know, the story of Viagra, that, that's a repurposed drug. <laughs> um, if, and so was it something, someone said, hey, why don't we try this? Do you know the story of that? 
I don't. And that was actually something I had been searching for in 2014 was, okay, so who was the first doctor that said, hey, let's throw Rituxan at ITP and see what it does. Hmm. Um, so, and I couldn't tell if it was a hematologist or a rheumatologist, because of course, it, ITP is an autoimmune disease. So technically, I kind of straddle that area between hematology and rheumatology. And hmm. I've learned in the last six years, they don't necessarily like to work together on patients. So the patient is sort of the, the middleman, so to speak. Uh, but I could never find it. Uh, one interesting tidbit was my first hematologist in the hospital came in. And the day that I, that Tara, my doctor had called me and told me my, my CBC results, a, uh, a research product, uh, study was printed on rituxan for ITP. Um, and he had mentioned to me, yeah, these doctors just put out this report on rituxan for ITP. You should think about it. And he left. Now, of course, this is uh, three hours after I was admitted to the hospital and wow. still trying to figure out how to spell immune thrombocytopenia. Um, and, and I wasn't sure if it. I was going to die or live. Yeah. <laughs> I had a nurse write it down for me on a piece of paper. Um, but I, uh, I didn't think much of it. And then of course you have this whole idea of your diagnosis with a rare disease. I was only 27 at the time. And then you want me to use chemotherapy what and it's not fda approved for the condition and so it was a it was my own personal medical tsunami i think that's a really great way of describing all of the emotions and, and information wow. i had to process at one time wow yeah you got the earthquake and then the tsunami i mean yes <laughs> goodness so the cares act i read passed in january if I'm not mistaken, right? It was signed into law. And that's something you've been pretty passionate about, if memory serves. Correct me if I'm wrong. Just in time, before the tsunami hits, um, the CARES Act is designed to address some of these things. Are there any limitations so far with this? I mean, what do you think of, what do you think of this event? So I haven't dived in too much to the CARES Act yet because I'm still watching the 20, what they did with the 21st Century CARES Act, which was the first bill I ever got involved with after my rare disease diagnosis. And we, uh, we advocated for a lot of changes and the government was trying to tell us like, hold on guys, we need a little bit of time to roll out all of these uh, different measures and, and things that you're requesting and, and we're willing to do it, but the government moves very slowly. Of course, now in the age of COVID-19, we see that when they wanna move quickly, they do and at mm -hmm. rapid speed. But of course we were, we signed the bill into law uh, in the end, uh, Obama signed it in 2016 in December. And then come about 2018 was when we really started to piece out certain uh, policies and projects and things involving the FDA, drug development, data. Uh, we just had a great part of uh, right before the, the pandemic really blew up, um, patient data and, and open access and APIs and trying to help uh, patient data move in between different EHR systems and hospital systems and things. Um, but I think what we're going to see now is you're going to see Congress and especially their staff who have been instrumental in working with patient advocates and patient advocacy groups to change laws and make things and make medicine and, and uh, scientific research more patient friendly. They're going to go back and look at every single thing that they did 
in light of this pandemic because they've been forced to live like myself and other rare disease patients and, and being fearful of the unknown with a, with a, a virus going around. And they're going to look at everything. And the first question they're going to ask is, does this help or does this hurt? And I wow. think you're going to start seeing a sweeping change come probably summertime when they can get back to Washington and work, because there's going to be a lot of answers to that question that are, this actually hurts. Well, the question is, as an attorney, as a practicing attorney, you know the questions are more important than the answers. And asking good questions, I think a lot of people are going to be asking a lot better questions now, like, wait a minute. I, I was able to call my doctor on the phone during the COVID crisis, and in five minutes, my problem was solved. I didn't have to go to the office. Now I have to go back to the office? What? <laughs> They're going to have a hard time putting the genie back in the bottle. So there's a lot of, as I've said, that there, there are some very good things out of this disaster that's ongoing, the train wreck. Um, so there are some things that are good about it. And as tough as it is, sometimes you have to, you know, ask what is good about it. Segment two, privacy. I had Dr. Molly Rutherford on, and she is a direct primary care doctor in Kentucky. And she also does addiction recovery. And I mentioned the thought of somehow in a big large database because this has happened not just in the United States but overseas where a patient's health history is published online I said what would happen what would what would be the result of all your patients records being published online and that was a disaster. That would have been a really bad thing. You are very public about what's happened to you, all the things that you've been through, which makes sense. We get that. But I started thinking about what, a, what are the things that rare, rare disease patients, what, I mean, do they have to go public with, is there a reason that they would have to go public, like inform an employer or are most of them, I don't want to say hiding it, but they expect medical privacy. How do they feel about that? What's, what's the current thinking? The rare disease community is interesting in that uh, because so little is known about most of these rare diseases. And then of course, when we talk about rare diseases, some people will think of the ones that are more well-known, hemophilia, cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy. And so when some people may say, oh yeah, well, I, I have a friend with cystic fibrosis or, oh, hemophilia. Yeah. The, oh, that's that bleeding disorder. And, and so but then you have these people with a, a rare condition. I have a, a very good friend of mine who lives in Wisconsin, and her daughter is one of maybe 65 children in the world with something called Timothy syndrome. And she always is talking about her daughter's condition because she's trying to raise awareness for it. And mm -hmm. the hope is when they speak out or they go online or they make these videos and things that they're going to find other patients who uh, perhaps the parents are going online right now and Googling symptoms and saying, hey, my child has this list of, of, of issues and 
we need to figure out what's going on. The doctors don't have answers. And it's been amazing over the past six years to watch online. Sometimes as it happens, um, parents connect the dots for their children through other parent advocates. And they go back to the doctor and say, listen, join this Facebook group. I found this website of this organization and it's talking about all of the things that my child is coming to your office and presenting with. Can we get a genetic test or can we order these series of tests and find out what they say? And the doctor orders them, they come back, and then it's a confirmed diagnosis. So yeah. the privacy part of it, um, I think when you have a stigmatized disorder, and I can speak about this as a blood disorder patient. Uh, when I was diagnosed, I had a lot of people who sort of shunned me. There was this belief that I had HIV uh, and not ITP, and they didn't want to be my friend anymore, and, and I was I was gross or dirtier. And those stigmas don't belong in the HIV community to begin with. But as an ITP patient with a rare disease that's not understood, it was devastating to me um, emotionally to, to experience that. And so I, I had to hide at first my diagnosis. And I was concerned too about my employment and whether I would be able to go back to work uh, and I did eventually get laid off, but mm. there's, so there are some privacy concerns around that. And of course, if I could have gone back to work, I would have been more guarded. I don't know that I would have been as public with my ITP struggles um, as I was since I got laid off. And then after I got laid off and used Rituxan, I started the blog. So I, I went public. Yeah. Uh, but I think for the most part, your parents of rare disease patients who have these very small populations, uh, they have to get online. My friend Monica Weldon, her son Beckett has Syngap 1, and he was the sixth person in the world diagnosed in literature with Syngap. And now um, we have uh, about three to four, somewhere between like three to 400 uh, patients around the world now. And she has a registry, she has an organization. I used to sit on the board of it uh, that's they're driving drug development and trying to repurpose uh, drugs for those kids. And it's amazing. And it was just one mom who decided, let me start a nonprofit let me email some researchers that are doing animal models into Syngap and the uh, protein in the brain and it exploded. So when, when we're discussing privacy, I also have fibromyalgia and Sjogren's syndrome, which are common conditions. And so they, uh, fibromyalgia especially, uh, it, it, chronic pain is very stigmatized, obviously with the opioid epidemic and painkillers and, and the, the drug seeking yeah. behavior and all the stuff that people throw at you uh, when you're in chronic pain. Uh, that stuff, some people don't feel comfortable discussing. And so their privacy is super important. And I applaud advocates in, in the addiction space, chronic, uh, chronic disease, chronic illness, chronic pain, uh, who do speak up because the social stigma associated with that can be, can be brutal. It really can. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, I spoke at length with doc, Dr. Rutherford about that and she recommended, um, you know, a good book, which was uh, Sam Kenyona's book, Dreamland. And that's an excellent book about how it happened, the tragedy of errors in some cases. So I think it's, I think it's, it's heartening to hear that, that setting privacy aside, that there are people that say, I'm going to do something, you know, hold my beer. <laughs> I'm doing it. I love that. You know, sort of like what you've done. You've said, hold my beer. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take it on. And, and you've done that. And so 
I did a little, I'm doing a little connecting of dots and segment three is about care itself. And I don't know if you remember it, but when we first started conversing online, I remember telling, asking you about your care. Where was, whenever I see a medical story, the first question I ask is, where is primary care in all this? And I'm never, I'm usually never surprised at the answer because the answer is usually, well, I don't have a primary care doctor. And it seems the younger you go, the more likely that is. So given that a lot of this, and this is the next little factoid, and the quote is, furthermore, if care for the, this is for um, a quote on care. Furthermore, if care for patient, for the patient is uncoordinated, as it is quite often, as it is quite often is, it can result in time being spent going to multiple appointments, which could have been avoided if care was better coordinated. Care coordination is the coordination of patient care between two or more professionals involved in the, their treatment facilitating the appropriate healthcare services. Well, guess what? That's exactly what a DPC doctor does. It's the focal point for all your care. And then they're the ones that are there coordinating it. They're saying, they're calling the specialist and saying, okay, doc, what did you hear? Tell me what's going on. And then they connect with you and say, so Candace, tell me what you heard. <laughs> Sometimes they're not the same or they're different or, you know, they know they have a communication gap. But these are two real key benefits for rare disease patients and direct primary care solves some real big issues. So I'm wondering in your travels within the rare disease community, have you been hearing much about direct primary care and what it's able to do for your community? There really isn't a discussion on that. Now in the pediatric rare disease populations, generally the pediatrician is the the primary care provider and it makes things uh, very easy for parents because they will be dispatched to various specialists as needed and then they always follow back up with getting the information back to uh, the pediatrician. And this is especially true in some of these conditions where they may be traveling across state lines or across a country to a specialist or to a center of excellence set up by a disease specific organization so that the child can uh, receive therapy and care and things based on the experts of whatever the disease is. Uh, but then this does bring up the great question of, as we develop more treatments and therapies for these rare diseases and these children live longer, what do you do when you age out of pediatric care? Who do you see next? Who is the next pediatrician doctor you love and trust that you rely on? Because your specialists will still be there. And, and even if they retire, you have people rising through the ranks of medical school and these research institutions that will take over. But we don't have a, anything saying, hey, when you age out of your pediatrician, here, here's the next person that's going to be sort of your center point in the universe of rare diseases to help you and, and to also be an advocate for you because then we bring in, when we have pediatricians and, and these specialist doctors advocating for their IEPs and 504 plans and, and 
establishing therapy guidelines and things for the kids. But what about college? What about a job? What about uh, going filing for permanent disability? All of these questions come into play. And as a lawyer, I'm always asking that and going, well, what's next? And so this is an, a conversation that needs to be had, um, especially by the umbrella rare disease organizations who are working with um, patient groups and disease-specific nonprofits, because you have to start thinking ahead. Um, I think five years ago, we probably were a lot less hopeful about long-term survival rates with children with uh, pediatric rare diseases. Now that we've seen more drugs being approved, you have um, Spinraza, you have Exondes 51, uh, and a couple others now, uh, patients with things like spinal muscular atrophy or Duchenne muscular dystrophy will be living into young adulthood and, and hopefully even longer. And these are, these are issues uh, that will have to be addressed. I loved my pediatrician growing up, and uh, I don't know that I would ever find a doctor who, uh, other than Dr. Ron, who was my cheerleader like my pediatrician was. And so I, I seek those relationships, but I wouldn't know where to begin. And I think there's an there's a, a opportunity there for DPC physicians to work with these umbrella organizations in the rare community to perhaps set up a relationship uh, and, and education and educational material that, hey, parents, we need to do this. Or perhaps it could be a service funded by um, a nonprofit disease organization. And these doctors could also assist the parents um, if they're doing registries and, and collecting data for drug development. These doctors could be a massive part of that. And they're also a really great weapon in the arsenal for an FDA advisory committee meeting uh, because you want as many medical experts as you can there. Because as we've seen over the years, the FDA has some really brilliant people working in there. Um, but they are not the experts on these rare diseases who that may have been popping up over the last 5, 10, 15 years. Uh, and yeah. so they need to be educated. Um, and sometimes they listen to patients, but you're more likely to have them uh, be more receptive to their peers who may be uh, a direct primary care physician. One of the things that you find is that super users are 50% of our healthcare cost. And that's 5% of the population. And I think, is it fair to say that most rare disease patients fit into that category of super user? Yes, I would say the majority of them do, especially uh, children with these conditions that are sort of newly understood or, or discovered um, from the genetic like spectrum of, of all these uh, weird diseases that are presenting. First, they have epilepsy portion, then they have the autism, then they may have a digestive issue. And so uh, it just turns into sort of a whack-a-mole game for the parents or caregivers um, going between different specialties and, um, and physician groups trying to put out fires uh, to just try to have a, a decent quality of life for their child. Mm. Well, the, the secret is comprehensive primary care. And if you, there's a great article in the Atlantic magazine about super users. It's been out for a while now. People usually cite it. And I'm, again, when I read these articles, I think, where's primary care in all this? Great primary care, comprehensive primary care. And you go through the article, and about three quarters of the way through, they mentioned one of the main drivers for this is the lack of coordinated primary care. If you nail that, if you get that right, you lower the cost down dramatically. 
where are some places that people can go to a learn more and b keep in touch so uh, I definitely recommend if you're interested in learning more about rare diseases, getting involved, or perhaps you have a rare disease and you're trying to make connections, um, there's a fantastic organization out of Southern California called Global Genes, and it's Genes, uh, G-E-N-E-S, uh, and they're a wonderful group of people. They have fantastic toolkits online um, from everything uh, that deals with getting the diagnosis and and uh working with a genetic counselor uh to starting your own organization or building a scientific advisory board uh and, and even harnessing data to develop treatments uh they are they're just a wonderful group of people so no matter where you are or your child is on, on your rare disease journey um and odyssey you have uh, resources there there's also the national organization for rare disorders uh, nord and nord is a, a fantastic resource they do a lot of work in advocacy and also in legislation because they're based in washington dc so definitely recommend them so between global genes and nord you generally get a, a good knock on what's going on obviously and, and they're always in the news right now the nih is a fantastic resource uh, especially for the undiagnosed um, who unfortunately spend way more than those four years trying to find a, a, any answer uh, and I highly recommend that for people who are struggling to get a diagnosis and have hit a dead end, the NIH Clinical Center is where you need to go uh, because yeah. you're going to have those those amazing minds there who can spend the time with, with researchers in the labs all on the campus looking at your tissue and, and your blood and, and your genome and, and everything and trying to put together the pieces of the puzzle for you. Uh, yeah. And sometimes uh, I know a couple of people who were patient one. And um, it's a relief. It's also a very stressful thing. So I always tell people, if you don't know the answer, go to the NIH. <laughs> Just like we've done with COVID. <laughs> we pulled Dr. Fauci in and, we, and Dr. Burks and we were like, we need your help and, and you need to lead us. Um, and then uh, I, I always welcome, I have a lot of people who reach out to me on Twitter and, and ask about their rare disease journey and things and I'll hook them up with uh, people. There's also a really great patient advocacy group that I, I love and I've been involved with for years. It's called We Go Health. And uh, they're fantastic because they just launched last year a wonderful platform uh, that has a bunch of different uh, educational series on becoming an advocate, maybe writing a blog or starting a podcast or doing a YouTube channel. And it's a really great way to connect with other patients, perhaps in your disease area or other um, diseases who are taking that step and going public perhaps and maybe shedding the code of privacy like we were talking about. Uh, and they give great tips and guidelines on what to do and how to work within your comfort zone as a patient to discuss your condition and advocate for yourself. So I really recommend between Global Genes Nord and WeGo Health, they are, they've got all the tools in the arsenal for you to become an effective patient advocate and also to sort of take charge of, of your rare disease diagnosis. Great. I, I will make sure that's in the description. I'll put it up on the screen in editing. And... And by the way, I do follow you at Rare Candice on Twitter. And also your website is rarecandice.com. So for people to know that. I really liked what you said about the zebra. Did you come up with the zebra? No, they, that was actually something that um, when I attended my first rare disease week at the end of February 2015, I learned about the zebra because I walked into the conference for the rare all these rare advocates and I'm like, 
what's up with all the zebra print? <laughs> I didn't understand what it was. And then somebody explained to me. So when your hoofbeats think zebras, not horses. And I'm like, oh, okay. Cause it was like, I mean, people were head to toe in zebra gear. And I'm like, did somebody have a fashion week where everybody was wearing zebra print? What is this? And so it, it was great, but it's a, uh, it's a very unifying thing because everybody has their awareness ribbons and their colors and their months and days. But really, um, when you're going to make an impact on advocacy and changing medicine, when you have 200, you know, if you have 7,000 different rare diseases and less than 200,000 people in each, segmenting them into individual groups is not as powerful. So the zebra was a really nice unifying force. Um, and I, I really liked that. So, uh, and the kids love it too. They get very excited and yeah. everybody always gives out little zebras every year. And, and it's, it, it's a great, uh, it's a great mascot. I, whoever whoever came up with that deserves a massive, you know, amount of brownie points. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that's and that's, you know, the other thing it reminded me of when you said it, it reminded me of, um, when IBM was doing their PCs and their advertising was, think, and then Steve Jobs, the brilliant marketing mind that he had, came out with the commercial in 84 with the woman running towards the screen with the, with the hammer and she throws it at the screen. It blows up. It was 1984, the, the, you know, George Orwell. And the end of the commercial, it said, think different. And that's exactly what I thought of. It's think different. Don't assume. And that's a very powerful message. So one last thing that I want to I want to ask because you're inspirational. And if there's a young person out there that's watching this someday and says to themselves sort of like be like Mike, <laughs> I want to be like Candace. What do you suggest to them? What what advice would you give a young person who's maybe experiencing what you are and it says, "You know what? I want to do what she's doing." What advice would you give to them? Well, I think the first thing that I would recommend is you need to find a team of people that are in your corner. Um, and it took me a little while to find those people and, and to find my like support system of friends who were going to be there for me through this weird journey of this weird disease that I couldn't even pronounce at first and, and didn't understand. Um, but then once you can get a hold on your health and sort of grapple with it, then you have to ask yourself what's next. And the answer doesn't always come um, right away to you. It took me a while of debating what my next steps were. I, I had a feeling I was going to lose my job and I was never going to be able to work in corporate America anymore with a rare disease that was going to keep coming back every couple years. And so that's when I decided, well, I want to change things. So how can I? And medical school was off the table. My do Dr. Ron told me, I don't want you being exposed to things. And now looking at this COVID uh, crisis, I'm like, wow, he, he was smart because uh, I wouldn't have been able to work during this. Yeah. Um, but I said, you know what? Lawyers cause a lot of problems in this country. The laws, the regulations, the red tape. And I was like, why don't I go to law school and figure out how to, how to strip it down? And so I knew for me that was the right way to do things. But if you have a passion for something, perhaps you want to be a, an accountant. You can be an accountant and then offer your services pro bono to some of these rare disease organizations that need assistance with their, their 990s every year. Um, 
maybe you want to bake cakes and cookies and have a bakery. Um, perhaps you could offer special cakes and cookies for patients who perhaps have uh, digestive issues or, or rare diseases that are metabolic in nature that require a certain type of diet. And they're so limiting for these poor children who are struggling to eat pizza or cake or cookies with their peers. Uh, everybody has a place and, and rare diseases and being involved with the rare disease community and advocating isn't just limited to starting your own foundation and maybe having a data, a data set collected for drugs. There's so many more things that you can do. And so uh, you should always keep an open mind as to how you can contribute and uh, Carve your own path. Don't follow somewhere, someone else's. Uh, don't don't walk on the sidewalk. Uh, just get in your car and, and drive through whatever you need to. Break down barriers. Break down silos. And if it, if you feel uncomfortable, you're making a difference. Because if you're feeling comfortable, you're not doing you're you're not shaking things up enough. When you're uncomfortable, you're growing. Yes. It's a lot of old phrases that my dad and my you know the older generations would pass down and boy, do they hit home later on in life. Um, and it, something that you, you said about, um, you know, getting, just getting out there and going. One of my favorite sayings, it is from Woody Allen and he attributed some of his success to the, the phrase ready, fire, aim. <laughs> Get ready, go, just go. And then start, you know, refining what you're doing. But half the time, most of the time, people never pull the trigger. They never fire. They just kind of sit there and go, wow, that'd be nice, but they don't do it. But thankfully, you've done it and you're doing it and you're making a difference. And that's terrific. So I commend you for that. And Candace Lehrman, thank you for joining me today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Well, to my listeners, thank you too. And stay healthy, wash your hands often, and there you are. <laughs>